the name of Jesus, the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. So we did three weeks already, and today is our fourth week that we're going to be talking about uh, the power of the name of Jesus. The first three weeks, we talked about salvation in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, what was the first? We talked so far about three different scriptures that teaches us that there is salvation in the name of Jesus. The first scripture, anybody can help me? Matthew, Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. And the second week we spoke from Romans uh, 10, 13, was it? Um, Whosoever calls upon the name of Jesus shall be saved, right? And what was the third week? Man, look at that. Acts chapter 4. I honestly forgot it. That's good. <laughs> Acts chapter 4. For there is no salvation in, in any other name, for there is no name given among men by which we might be saved, except the name of Jesus, Acts 4. Thanks for reminding me. I was like, what was the last one? I can't remember. Anyway, so today we're going to start talking about that passage in Philippians, Philippians 2, 4 to 11. We're going to talk about that phrase that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every knee will bow. And I think we're going to spend at least three weeks talking about that passage. It's, it's just so packed and we need to spend some substantial time to try to unpack it and understand what it says. Amen. So let's read it and then um, I'll give you the layout of the next three weeks after that. So that's Philippians 2, 4 to 11, the hymn that we're going to talk about starts from verse 6, but I want to give you a little bit backward two verses so we can know exactly what, what Paul is talking about here. So Philippians 2, 4 to 11, this is the New American Standard Version um, because we're going to be like pointing out to different translations and stuff like that. Um, so this is the New American Standard Version. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, okay, but also for the interest of other. Have this mindset have this attitude what is the attitude so far not to be selfish but to be selfless right not to be thinking about your personal interests but other interests so have this mindset have that attitude in yourself which this attitude not to think about personal interests but other interests was also in christ jesus how how jesus did not think about his own personal interests but others interests here it is Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed a upon him on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are um, on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father amen all right so we're going to talk about two things two main major things in this passage. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the Christology of this hymn, which is pretty much the study of what this hymn is teaching us about Jesus. Today, going to be, I don't know if you consider this boring, but going to be pure theology, uh, which is needed because we need to know not just what we believe, but why we believe. Amen? 
we need to know why do we believe that Jesus is God and all this stuff and uh, does this passage actually teach it or it doesn't teach it. So we're going to look into that, that Christology, that, that what does this passage teaches us about Christ. That's what we're going to talk about this week. Next week, we're going to start break down this passage and understand what Paul is trying to tell us. So verses 6 to 8, Paul is talking about the humiliation of Christ, the descendancy of the Son of God. That will be next week, verses 6 to 8. And then the week after, we're going to talk about the exaltation of Christ, how the one who came so low has been lifted up so high. And that will be verses um, 9 to 11. Amen? So that's the three weeks. This week, the Christology. Next week, the uh, humiliation of the Son of God, verses 6 to 8. The week after, the exaltation of the Son of God, verses 9 to 11. So let's uh, dig in. This passage is amazing. It teaches us so much theology about who God is and who Christ is. But it is not like unchallenged. And there's a lot of people who read the exact same passage like you and me. And they spin it so much that... They actually don't believe that this passage particularly teach, for example, that Jesus is God or anything like that. So let's dig in. I want to talk about two present groups of people that you can meet today who read this passage differently. <clears throat> the first group of people is the oneness theology and then the Jehovah Witness. Let's start with the oneness theology. What is the oneness theology? Okay, The oneness theology don't believe in the Trinity the way you and I understand the Trinity. So they do not believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct beings, okay? They believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three appearances of the same person, okay? So for them, the Trinity is like the water, for example. When it's room temperature, it's liquid. When it's cold, it's, it's ice. And when it's super hot, it's vapor, right? So... Liquid, solid, and vapor, these are three different appearances of the same amount of water. So it's this one thing, it just appears in different formats, okay? So they believe that God in the Old Testament revealed himself as the Father. In the New Testament, during the life of Christ, revealed himself as the Son. And now after the Pentecost, he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit, okay? So they do not believe that the three are distinct beings, all right? Um, T.D. Jakes is actually one of these people uh, who believes that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three different manifestations, and nobody cares to even, you know, stop him or question him about that. But anyways, um, so, and not only that, when I was in Indiana, there's like, almost like, what, 50% of the Christians in Indianapolis are oneness theology? It's, it's just insane. I have never run into that many concentration of people who believes in the oneness theology. And even here in the... Um, one of our yard sales, I was talking to a guy, and he was oneness theology, apostolic uh, oneness, whatever they believe they called. So anyways, so these people believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three different manifestations of the same person, but they're not three distinct people, okay? For me, this is just, is it heretical? I would say yes, but more, more than heretical, it's really dumb. You know, it's just, how can you even read the Bible and say there are the exact same manifestations, they're different manifestations of the same thing? Like John 3, 16, God the Father loved the world that he gave his son. So what does that mean? Like the Father and the Son, it's like, I, I don't get it. This like talks about two different beings here. The Father who, who sent the Son. So one sent the other. How can this be the exact same, uh, how, two appearances of the same person? I don't get it. Anyways, so the story is when I was in Indiana, uh, I, I met with this guy 
who, they have a Bible college there. Uh, so I met with the guy who's teaching theology at that, well, I met with the guys in, at Starbucks. It's like, hey, I have a couple of questions for you. It's like, oh, okay, great. They asked them a couple of questions, uh, and then ultimately they said, okay, we have a guy that uh, can talk to you. Okay, perfect. So they hooked me up with the, the professor, one of their professors in this uh, um, college. So I met with him, and we talked about that. Is God, the Trinity, distinct people, or that's three different appearances um, of the same being? And I started bringing him some scripture. For example, I told him, okay, so let me back out. They believe that Christ, before the incarnation, was an idea in the mind of God. He was a thought, but he was not an actual being, okay? So I was telling, I didn't know that before I met the guy. So I was like, here it is, you know, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can you say the Word was with God, that there are, the Word didn't exist, that Jesus didn't exist before his incarnation? He's like, yeah, he existed, but he existed as an idea, as a word, as a thought, but not as an actual being. Okay, it's wrong, but I can see if you, if you grow up believing that, you read that scripture and you say, oh, okay, that doesn't really say that the word existed as a, as a person. So I was like, well, how about John 8 when Jesus said, before Abraham came to existence, I am. And then he said, oh, still, I am. I existed, but as an idea. Now, at this point, he's trying to going off. This is weak, weak, weak argument from his point, you know? Because when Jesus said, I exist, that person doesn't exist unless he actually exists. Does that make sense? For example, uh, Katrina and I wanted to have kids. We thought about Micah. We thought about having babies, right? We, we talked about it. But Micah didn't come to existence till the day he was conceived or the day he was born, right? The fact that Katrina and I thought about and talked about it as an idea in our mind doesn't mean that Micah existed at that point. You guys agree with me? Right? But it's the exact same thing when it comes about Jesus. You can't say an idea when he says, I existed before Abraham was born, right? And while I'm talking to that guy, I was just thinking, is there a scripture in the Bible that says that Jesus actually existed as a being before he incarnated? When I was talking to that guy, like I'm talking to him and my brain is working in the, ba in, in the, back my, in, in the background so I can come up with a scripture. I couldn't come up with anything. But then after I left that guy, I remember that scripture right here in Philippians 2, verse 6, which says, who was that Jesus? Now, he existed in the form of God. And then verse 7, he says he emptied himself. So verse 6 right here talks about Jesus before his incarnation or during his incarnation or after his incarnation. Verse 6. That's eternally, before he became a human being, right? Verse 6, before he became a human being, he existed how? In the form of God, in the likeness and the similarity of God. So this scripture right here teaches us clearly that Jesus existed as a person in the form of God the Father before he emptied himself in verse 7, right? You get it? So if you read it, yeah, so if you meet any oneness theology people who say Jesus existed as an idea before his incarnation, tell him you're wrong. Philippians 2, 6, he existed not as an idea, but in the form of God eternally. And then in verse 7, he incarnated, he emptied himself, and then he became man like you and me. Amen? Dead wrong. This is like, I mean, they'll find a way to deny it, but at this point, it's on them, you know? <laughs> we just... What is that? Correct, but they say, well, the guy's argument is Jesus existed as an idea in God's mind. It's wrong, 
But I'm just thinking, if you grew up in that teaching, I can see how you see the scripture, this particular scripture this way. You know what I mean? But anyways, this way, this one particularly, you can see it, you cannot see it any other way. It's flat, clear, black and white. Jesus existed before his incarnation in the form of God as a, in, uh, as a distinct being who exactly like God. Amen? Amen? All right. Now let's go to the second um, argument against that scripture, and that's the Jehovah Witnesses. And they're good. Now, the, the oneness theology people, they're not good. You like when they say their argument, for the most part, they're just being stubborn and they really don't want to hear the truth. Jehovah Witnesses, on the other hand, they're very, very, very good. So they say that this teaching right here, this hymn right here, doesn't teach that Jesus is equal to God. Okay? They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, okay? But he is the first created being. So the Father made the Son at the, as the first being, and then the Father and the Son created the world. That's what Jehovah Witness teaches. And they believe that Jesus is a God uh, with a small g, but not equal to God Almighty, okay? So when you try to look at the hymn right here and tell them, okay, so how do you understand this hymn? This is how they think about it, okay? They say God is in position A, okay? And man is in position Z, like A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. And then, um, or X is the last letter, right? <laughs> so X, uh, God is position number one, man is position number 10, Jesus is position number two. So he's a little bit lower than God, but he's a whole lot higher than us. He's a God, but he's not equal to God Almighty. And this is how they understand this scripture right here. They say that Jesus existed in the form of God. That means he is in the likeness of God. He is similar to God. He's not the same like God. He's just similar to him. It's like, you know, Jesus was said to be the image of God, and God made man in his own image. When the Bible says that God made man in his own image, it doesn't mean that man is equal to God, right? It means just man is similar to God in so many ways, right? So it says, well, that's exactly what Paul is trying to tell us here. That Jesus is in the form of God. He is similar to God. He looks like God in so many ways, but he's not really equal to God or anything like that. And then it says that in verse 7, or continuing that verse, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And they say that the word grasped here comes from the root Greek word to snatch violently, which is true. And then they say... Jesus did not, who was in position number two, did not want to grasp violently something that is not his, which is to be equal with God, but rather he humbled himself all the way down and became like you and me. Okay? So you follow their thought process so far? Okay. They believe in him as the son of God, but he's not equal to God the Father. Does that make sense? Well, they say, yes, correct. We're going to focus on this right here. They say it's, it's yeah, they have a spin on it. We'll talk about it later, but correct. But we just, I don't want to leave that. I want to emphasize, stay here and just see what it says. Uh, tell me again, Nancy, what you're saying. I said that they don't believe primarily that Jesus Christ is the Son Oh, they believe he is the Son of God, but he's not equal to God. He's a lower God than the Son of God, than, than God himself. So they say that the word grasped, okay, the word grasped. Yes. Correct. Didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Okay, so they say, th that's their understanding now. I'm, I'm 
representing their position, okay? The word grasp here comes from the Greek word to snatch violently, correct. So they say that Jesus, who was similar to God, but lesser than God the Father, not want to violently grasp something that is not his, which is equality with God, but rather he humbled himself and became in the form of man. Okay? For example, that word grasped, I uh, mentioned a couple of times in the Bible. For example, Jude talked about it, said, snatching some, snatching some out of the fire. So like snatch some violently out of the fire. Jesus said the kingdom of God suffering violence and the violent snatched by force. It's the same root that Paul used right here in, in the same root of the word that Paul used right here that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, snatched violently. So they say, he didn't own it. He didn't want to reach out to it. He didn't want to reach out and grasp it violently. Rather, he humbled himself. That's their argument. And then you look at the end of that passage when it says, verse, um, verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that, uh, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This, this is a quote from Isaiah 45, okay, where God says, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee shall bow, and to me every tongue shall confess. Now, Paul used that verse and applied it to Christ. But Jehovah Witness, maybe some liberal theologians as well will say, not truly, because here it says, not every knee will bow to Jesus. It says that every knee will bow in the name of Jesus. And they say that's a big difference between bowing the knee to Jesus versus bowing the knee in the name of Jesus. So what's the difference? Again, this is just the, the mindset of some who argue that this, this scripture doesn't teach that Jesus is equal to God. They say this. Every time the scripture uses the term bow the knee, it's always followed with the word to somebody, not in something. Okay? For example... Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said, for this reason I bow my knees to God the Father. Okay, that's Ephesians 3. I have all the references in the notes. And then um, Romans, I think, uh, 14, I think, I have in the notes. When Paul is quoting the story of Elijah, and God is talking to Elijah, and he said, I have kept 7,000 knees that have, 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee to bow, right? So they say, every time you worship somebody, it says you bow the knee to that person. But when Paul talked about Jesus here, he didn't say that you'll bow the knee to Jesus. He said he'll bow the knee, you and I will bow the knee in the name of Jesus. And they say this is the vehicle by which we're going to worship God the Father. So the name of Jesus here is the mean, but the worship is ultimately presented to the Father, not to the Son, because the Son is lesser than the Father. You guys follow their thought process so far, okay? So that's their argument. That's why they say that this scripture doesn't really teach us that Jesus is equal with God the Father. I highly doubt you'll find a Jehovah Witness who will be as good as this, but if you ever find somebody, I hope today you'll be able to answer them. Amen? So let's look through these arguments and see if it's valid or if it's not valid. Let's look at the first argument. When they say that the word form of God... You guys follow me so far, okay? The first argument is they say that the word form of God means similar to God. Not the same, just similar. The likeness of God, but not exactly like God. Amen? So let's look at that. This argument is absolutely false. And here is why. 
correct it is mentioned that Jesus is the image of God some other places. It is correct that when the Bible say that God made man in his own image doesn't mean that man is God. But when Paul right here says that Jesus was in the form of God, he literally means that Jesus was exactly God. Why do I say that? Because if you keep on reading verse 7, it says this. It says, he emptied himself, taken upon himself, what? The form of a slave, right? The word form in Greek, morphe, was mentioned only three times in the whole New Testament. Two times right here. One in verse 6, that Jesus was in the form of God. And one in verse 7, when it says that he took upon himself the form of a slave. And then I think one last time in the book of Mark, Mark 16, 12, when it says, after these things, he appeared to, in another form to two of them. And they were, um, as they were walking into that country. That's the only three times that the word form was mentioned in the New Testament. So if we really want to understand what is exactly in the mind of Paul, when he said that Jesus was in the form of God, we don't really need to look way far than the actual passage that we're reading right now. Amen? So in verse 7, Paul said that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, a bond slave. Question, how much of a servant, how much of a human being Jesus has become? Yes, but when he was a man like you and me, how much of a human being was Jesus? Was Jesus like man, similar to man, or was he exactly man? He was exactly man. He was 100% human, like you and me, exactly. And that's precisely what Paul is trying to tell us. If we got to understand verse 7, that Jesus was exactly man, then by being fair to the text, we must understand verse 6, that Jesus was exactly God. You cannot read the same word in the same text and understand it in two different ways. Now, that's being biased against the scripture. You guys follow me so far? So the word form here precisely say that Jesus was exactly God. Why? Because in verse 7, the exact same word says that Jesus was exactly man. Amen? I think the NIV nailed it when they translated that passage. Here is how the NIV translated it. It says that, who Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be ad taken advantage of. Rather, he made himself nothing and take upon himself the very nature of a servant. I believe that this is precisely what was in Paul's mind when he wrote the word form of God and the word form of man. He's saying that Jesus was in the very nature God and he became in the very nature man. He was exactly God in his nature and he became exactly God, exactly man in his nature. You guys follow me so far? Good? Good? Okay. NIV, that's that translation. That's the blue Bibles we have here. The NIV says they nailed it. They nailed the right translation because they translated as follows. He was in the very nature God and he became in the very nature man. So that's precisely what the Greek is trying to tell us here. He was exactly God and he became exactly man. Okay? And not, not only that, but this is really, really, really cool. If we look at the rest of verse 6, it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. If you got to go to the Greek and read it word for word, it will not make any sense in English, but here is how it says. He, it says like this. Not a thing to be grasped, he considered the being equal with God. 
Okay? That's the last passage in the second page in point number one. Okay? If you guys follow me. It says this, the Greek. Not a thing to be grasped. He considered the being equal with God. And being equal with God in that second part of verse 6 has actually a definite article, that, before it. He didn't, the Bible doesn't say that he did not consider a thing to be grasped, being equal with God, but that being equal with God. And when you have that definite article, the definite article in that being equal with God implies that the second expression, that being equal with God, is closely connected to the first expression, which is the form of God. So precisely what Paul is saying here is this, that Jesus did not consider to be grasped that being equal, that being equal with God. And he said that being equal with God, we just talked about that when he said that he is in the form of God. Does that make sense? You guys follow me? Everybody? You're with me? So precisely the definite article when it says that being equal with God, the definite article here, connect that, that part with what he just said, which is the form of God. So that tells us again that when Paul said that form of God, Jesus being in the form of God, is talking about nothing less than being totally equal with God. Okay? Follow me so far. Exactly, because the Greek has the different article which ties the second part to the first part. Pretty much says that the second part is mirroring the first part. The first part is being the form of God. The second part is equal with God. So he's saying that these actually like two, coin, two sides of the same coin. Being equal with God is the exact same thing like being in the form of God. You guys follow me so far? Yeah. So that's the first. Go ahead. Correct. We'll look into that as well because, um, okay, so you got, we're just talking about the first word. Form of God. Does that mean that Jesus is exactly God or similar to God? No, exactly. exactly God. We talked about their argument and we answered that and we see that the scripture is clear. Paul's intention is pretty clear that Jesus is not just similar to the Father. He is exact like the Father. Amen. Now let's talk about the second point. When they say the word grasped is means something to snatch violently, that he didn't have equality with God and that he didn't want to, to, to grasp it, reach out to it and grasp it violently, but rather he humbled himself, okay? Is it true that when the Bible says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that it, didn't, it means that Jesus didn't own it? The word grasped, okay, so the root of the word is actually uh, happened in the scripture multiple times. You can see the root of the word and different derivatives of that word throughout the Greek New Testament. So that's not the issue. But that particular derivative in Greek actually never occurred anywhere else in the New Testament. That particular derivative of the word to snatch was never anywhere else in the whole New Testament. And not only that, but it's actually also very rare outside the Bible in any Greek literatures, okay? So that makes this word extremely, extremely, extremely hard to um, translate because it's just there's no other examples or, or phrases that you can compare it to to know exactly what it means. If you go to our website under resources, the, Divinity, the deity of Christ on trial, and then there is a chapter called scripture that implies his deity, and I, I, I'm going in depth on that word, like two, three pages, what this scholar said, what this other scholar said, why this right, why this wrong, and you can go back and study all what you want, I'm not gonna bore you with all of this, but here is what I'm gonna tell you, the general conclusion that people have reached 
even though this conclusion is not without problems, but is the most plausible, okay? And it is this, that this is actually an idiom in Greek. So when the word consider or think, any derivative of that verb comes with the word to grasp like that, in Greek, it, it, it can transform the whole thing into an idiom, and it really means something to hold onto or to grasp at for your own privilege. That's what literally the Greek becomes. So it, the, the Greek fathers, for example, understood this word as a prize, so they will understand he did not consider equality with God as a prize that he can hold onto, but he humbled himself. Greekly, recent Greek scholar kept modifying that understanding, and I think they came to that exact meaning that still without, it's not that without problems, but it's the most plausible that this word with the verb to think is an idiom, and it literally means to take advantage on for, off for your own benefits, okay? So what Paul is trying to tell us this, Jesus did not want to hold onto equality with God for his own benefits so he can avoid the pain of the cross and just coming down and living among us. He didn't want to do that. He humbled himself and he became in the form of man because he put the interest of God the Father above his own interest, as Paul was saying in verse uh, 4 and 5. You guys follow me so far? So, again, I feel like the NIV will nail that translation as well. I think the NIV, for me, is the most accurate to what Paul's intentions was. So, like, if you read the NIV, the whole verse leads like this. Who was, who was being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You see, like, the NIV totally changed the wording, but I think it's going after the exact meaning that Paul is trying to tell us here. He, um, he did not... Um, consider equality with God something to be used for for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking upon himself the nature of a servant and being found in the form of a slave, he went to the cross. You guys follow me? Long story short, short if you forget anything I'm saying, I'm telling you today, go with the NIV on these two verses. I think it's the most accurate translation you'll find out there, okay? So, um, and not only that, that it's a Greek idiom and it means like take advantage for your own personal gain, but that meaning will make more sense in the context of the hymn. And let me tell you why, okay? Verses 6 and 8. If you're bored, I apologize, but you need to understand this stuff. You need to know why you believe what you believe. Amen? Verses 6 and 8. The whole direction of these two verses is downward, right? Jesus is going down, 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 down. The whole directions of verses 6 and 8 is going downward, right? And the whole direction of verses... 9 to 11 is upward, right? Do you see that in the hymn, the scripture that we just read? He was in the form of God. He didn't want to hold onto it. He humbled himself, being in the form of man. And being in the form of man, he humbled himself more to be obedient to the point of the cross. Verses 9 and 11, you see that Jesus is going up. God so highly exalted him that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So, if we're going to hold the translation that Equality with God, follow me, okay? That equality with God is something that Jesus did not possess and he did not want to reach out to, then verses 6 and 8 will go up and down because it's like this. Jesus was in position B. He didn't want to elevate himself to position A. He humbled himself to position Z, or you know, all the way down. But this is not in the direction that the whole hymn is going through. It's Jesus was in A. He didn't want to stay in A. He went all the way down to Z. That's what he's trying to tell us, Paul. And that will make more sense with the line of the hymn that the whole direction is downward instead of going upward and downward. 
If you didn't understand this, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal, okay? <laughs> it flows. Exactly. That's what I'm. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. It flows better with the meaning of the hymn to say that Jesus did not want to hold on to the advantage of being equal with God for her, his own personal gain. He came down for us. Amen. That flows best with the meaning of uh, of the flow of the hymn. Okay, so that, that is the word grasp. Now let's look at the last uh, argument. When they say, in the name of Jesus, not to the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So the idea here again is that Jesus is the vehicle by which worship is presented to the Father, but he's not the ultimate end of the worship itself. You guys follow the, the argument here, right? So let's look. Questions? Everybody good? So let's look at that. Does it really mean that Jesus is the vehicle through, of worship or is, it, is he the end of worship? And I was reading through like a lot of um, commentators yesterday about that. And none of them really offered a good argument as far as I am concerned. I mean, when you think about an argument like this, you don't think about it as you and me who believe that Jesus is God and you try to make the Bible say You need to put yourself in the Jehovah Witness shoes or somebody who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. And if he believes that, then you need to see how, from his perspective, this can be wrong. You don't look at it from your perspective and say, oh, it's wrong because, you know, so and so. You guys follow me. So here is what I found some other, com one commentator was referring to, and I thought that's pretty genius. The Bible says this, that in the name of Jesus, okay, every knee shall bow. Help me out here. Let's say that verse together. In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess what? Jesus is Lord. What is the, who is the subject of the confession? Is it God the Father or is it Jesus? Jesus is the subject of the confession. The Bible doesn't say that every tongue shall confess that God will receive all the glory because what he has done to us through Jesus, right? The subject of the confession is Christ himself, that he is Lord. And if we're going to argue that the subject of the confession, a confession of every tongue is Jesus, then we must argue that the subject of every knee to bow is also Jesus. Amen? Because every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. It's the exact same thing. The bowing of the knee, the confession of the tongue is to the ultimate one end goal. And that is Jesus. You guys follow that? Follow me? Okay, so even though it is, from a grammatical perspective, it is odd. And maybe this is the only example in the New Testament that we see worshiping the knee or bowing the knee in the name, not to the name. Even though it's grammatically odd, but from that context and from what the text is actually telling us, it's pretty clear that Jesus is the subject of the bowing of the knee, and he is also the subject of the confession of the tongue. Amen? You got that? So is Jesus equal to God? You got that right? Absolutely. That's every intention in Paul's mind that Jesus is equal to God the Father. He's not similar to him. He's not lesser than him. He is equal to God exactly when it comes to his nature. Amen? In fact, here is what it is. Paul had no problem to quote that verse from Isaiah 45, 22 to 23 and apply it directly to Christ. Here's what Isaiah said in the Old Testament. This is God speaking in Isaiah. And he said, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For what? For I am God and there is no other. So God is saying, I'm the only and one and only. Look at this now, verse 23. 
by myself I have sworn, my mouth have uttered it, had uttered in all integrity as uh, a word that will not be revoked before me. Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. So God said, this is to me, every knee will bow. I assure you, I'm the one and only God. There's no God next to me. My word has come out. It shall never be revoked. What is this word? To me, God says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, right? Even Paul himself in Romans 14, 11 had no problem quoting that scripture, applying it to God. This is what he said, Romans 14, 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. This is his quote in, in Romans 11, 14, 11, right? But the exact same Paul, who knew that this scripture is absolutely applicable to God, has no problem whatsoever to quote that exact scripture and apply it to Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Amen? And he said that in the name of Jesus, God lifted Christ so high that in the name of Jesus, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen? Good? Is Jesus similar to God? No, he is the exact same like God. Amen? All right, so if you ever run into Jehovah's Witness, I hope you now know what to do about this particular phrase, the particular scripture here. Amen? But let's, let's look at the hymn one last time, just study what the Bible teaches us, the relationship between the Father and the Son from that hymn, okay? Overall, the scripture teaches us this, that even though the Son of God is of the same essence, the same nature, exactly like the Father, yet he's functionally subordinate to the Father. You guys follow me so far? That's the, that's, that's the overall message of the scripture. Uh, anybody tells you anything less, other than that, he's, he's not being honest to the, to the scripture. For example, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He sent the Son. So always we read that the Father sent the Son. So we never read that the Son sent the Father, right? Or that the Father is in line with the Son. We always read that the Son is in line with the Father. You guys follow me so far? So there's always that element of functionality. The Son is always subordinate to the Father. But when it comes to their being, when it comes to their nature, when it comes to their attributes, uh, what they can do, who they are, they're on the same bar. They're equal to each other. You guys follow me? Okay, I'll give you a perfect example for that. Let's say Katrina and I, um, home alone. Her and I are home alone, okay? Now, in the house, we have tables, we have chairs, we have walls, we have pictures, we have everything in the house, but in the house, it's only, who is the human beings in the house? There's only two, right? Katrina and I, right? You guys follow me so far? Okay, now, Katrina and I, when we are alone at, house, at the house, we share some characteristics that sets her and me apart from everything else that exists around us. You guys follow me? We talk, we communicate, we think, we see, we smell, we, we touch. We have a human nature that sets us apart from the tables and the chairs and the walls and the pictures and the beds and everything else that is in the house. You guys follow me? Okay. 
But in the same time, Katrina and I have in a conversation about what we're going to have for dinner. She's saying chicken. I'm saying steak. Ultimately, I hope that she will go with what I want. <laughs> Whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, the Bible is calling her to be submissive to me, right? The Bible is now calling me to be submissive to her. Not to. Uh, we'll talk about that in a different way, but functionally speaking, functionally speaking, his role is to be submissive to me, and my role is to be the leader of the house. You guys follow me so far, right? But still, the fact that she is submissive to me functionally doesn't mean that she is of a lesser nature than me. You guys follow me? That she is a less of a human being because she's supposed to submit to me. When it comes to our nature, we exactly like, we exactly the same thing, right? We have the unique characteristics that sets us apart from everything that is not alive in the house, right? But when it comes to the functional, she is supposed to submit to me. You guys follow me? And that's precisely, I believe, a perfect analogy of how the Bible describes the relationship between the father and the son. When it comes to nature, they're on the bar. They're equal to each other. They're both self-existing. Nobody made neither one of them. They have the same attributes, the same characters. They do the exact same thing. There is nothing that the father is that the son isn't. You guys follow me, okay? But when it comes to the function, the son is to be subordinate to the father. He, the father functionally has the hierarchy order. Do you guys follow me so far? And we see that throughout the scripture, and we see it particularly also in this passage. Let's just look at it one last time. In terms of equality in their nature, we see that Jesus is in the form of God. That is, Jesus is exactly like God. Point number two, he did not consider equality with God something that he can grasp for or um, hold onto for his own personal interest. And number three, after his incarnation, he was exalted back to be equal with God, the exact same thing that he was before he ascended down. Um, the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, let me mention something here as well. When the Bible says, for God has also lifted, so God lifted him up to the highest places or lifted him up on high. The Greek word here, the, the highest places, is actually used in the Old Testament in reference to God as well. Only one, that's the only two people that these two words, that this Greek word, highest places, was referenced to. It used for Christ here, and it was used for the Father in the Old Testament when it says that he is above all gods, it's the exact same Greek. He is in the highest places, literally, that's what it says. And that was, was mentioned only about the Father and about the Son, okay? So they're equal when it comes to their nature, but when it comes to the function, we still see that the Son is subordinate. How? Here it is. Well, the Father, he is the one who exalted the Son, right? It didn't say that Jesus exalted himself, right? The Father exalted him. You guys follow that? The Father is the one who has given him the name that is above every name. Jesus did not get that name on his own. He, it was given to him by the Father, right? And number three, that the purpose of every knee and uh, the purpose of every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Is why? To the glory of God the Father. So you guys see the old thing started with the Father and ends with the Father. So Jesus is functionally subordinate to the Father and ultimately everything is for his glory. But when it comes to their nature, they are equal to each other. Jesus is not less of a God. He's worthy of all worship, all praise, or, or glory because he is exactly like God when it comes to his nature. You guys follow me? Clear like mud? Okay, questions?
Okay, uh, we're not talking about the Trinity here. This no, passage no, just the relationship between the Father and the Son. Yes. But generally, to answer your question, there is um, equal in the nature, but a subordination in the function. The Father then the, sent the Son, and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. So there's a subordination in the function, but again, it doesn't mean that they're lesser than, they're all in the same bar when it comes to nature. They're all self-existent, they're all called God, they're all uh, worthy of all worship, they're all created us, they're all our creator, you know? So it's like, uh, yes, three different distinct beings. They have, again, the whole analogy about Katrina and I being alone at the house. They share the characteristics, like when Katrina and I are home, we, her and I, Okay, here and I and Micah, for example, with three of us, we share the three. We share characteristics that sets us apart from everything else in the house that is not human, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share the characteristics that makes God God, that distinct them from any other being ever existed or will ever exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, any other being and every other thing, but there is a functional um, hierarchy in that order. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we took, uh, how do I say, the, the, the president of the Lutheran church. Okay. 